you don't, I will come to your house and haunt you. <laughs> We're in 1 Corinthians today. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We are finally finishing chapter 3. 1 Corinthians. After the Easter season, we'll move into chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I'm going to tell a little bit on myself a little bit. Hopefully, I won't, I'm not being too transparent with you. But when I was a kid, like really small, young, immature kid, I would stand in front of the mirror and I would flex. And I looked at myself and I said, oh, that guy's such a stud. Look at him. He's so big, so strong. I was this little wimpy guy. And I imagined myself growing up once I, you know, got into my teenage years and my body started to grow and fill out. And I said, oh my goodness, I'm going to be the strongest guy ever. My muscles are going to be huge. And as I stood there and flexed in front of the mirror, I imagined this guy kind of like Arnold Schwarzenegger, right there. <laughs> then I got into high school, and lo and behold, I did not become Arnold Schwarzenegger. I would st stand there in front of the mirror, and I would flex in high school, and I'd cry. <laughs> not literally. I was not athletic. I still am not athletic. Growing up, I had so many friends who could lift more than I could, who ru could run faster than I could, who could do anything athletic better than I could. And I still have a lot of friends that way. In high school, God taught me humility through that. The moment I realized I was not going to be Arnold Schwarzenegger, my head shrunk to fit the size of my body. God taught me humility lots of other ways, but that is one of the ways that God taught me humility. As humans, sometimes we think, can think too highly of ourselves. We can look at the mirror, and instead of actually seeing what is there, we can imagine something else and say, wow, look at that person. We say, wow, look at what that person can do. Look how that person can think. Look at, look at what that person looks like. And we have that image. And unfortunately, that image that we have is not actually true. Sometimes we can think so highly of ourselves that we forget God in the process. And we say, look what I can do. Look how I can think. I don't need God. God doesn't need me. I am adequate for the tasks of today because of how amazing I am. And in the face of our pride, in the face of our self-sufficiency, Paul urges us to pray, Lord, give us humility. The Corinthian church thought a great deal of themselves. The culture of that day put a lot, a lot of worth on what, who, who, which teacher you were following. If you could say, hey, that you were a follower of Paul, you had a certain status. If you were a follower, if you were a follower of, of Socrates, you had, a, you had a certain status. And so all these Corinthians were starting to tie themselves with different teachers so they could say, look who I am. Look which teacher I'm following. I am so wise to be able to say that I am a follower of that teacher instead of that teacher. Look at me. They thought that their wisdom and their ability in picking good teachers gave them a higher importance than all the other people in the church who picked different teachers to follow. But it was just their pride. It was their self-centeredness. It was their, how can I advance myself? How can I look better? Look what I can do with my amazing wisdom coming out. And they're standing the Corinthian church, flexing in the mirror and thinking they are all that, but they are not. And Paul writes to these Corinthians, Lord, give us humility. He says to these who are obsessed with their own wisdom and their own teachers, he says to them in 1 Corinthians 3, 18 to 23, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 18 to 23, he says, do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. 
For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. Will you pray again with me? Father, thank you that we are yours. Through the death, burial, and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, we are yours. And we have all things through you. Lord, thank you that we don't have to chase the things of this world. We don't have to create this image for ourselves or fight for different statuses or values. Lord, you are everything to us. Forgive us for how we live, seeking all these things when you are enough. Forgive us how we try to be self-sufficient when we need you because you are everything. Lord, today as we come to your word, I ask that you would give us humility as we study it. That we truly understand who you are and who you've called us to be and we would own up to it and that you would change our lives to reflect that. And Father, may we not fight against it because you know our humanity. You know how we like our status quo. We like who we are even though it is sinful and depraved. Teach us your ways, Lord. As I'm up here, Lord, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. Paul prays for himself and the Corinthians Lord, give us humility. And he gives us two answers to that prayer. He first says, don't pursue wisdom. Don't pursue wisdom. Did you catch what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 18? He says, do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of the age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. The world around us has a standard for what is wisdom. This foundation that wisdom is built upon, unfortunately, the standard is always shifting and changing depending on the seasons of the day and depending on who is talking. It's not anchored to anything. It's just based upon feelings and what someone might have taught. Based on wisdom, people might say, get good grades in school. If you get good grades in school, you will have this stamp of wise placed on you, which isn't true. People will say, you better have a good career. Don't waste your resources by majoring in art history. That's not wise. People might talk about wisdom when it comes to who we marry. Don't marry that person. That's not the wise choice. That's the wise choice. People would talk about wisdom in politics, both in whom we elect and which policies we pursue. They say, that's not the wise person. That's the wise person. That's not the wise thing. That's the wise thing. All these different things. And everyone has this own understanding of what is wise and what isn't wise. People will talk about wisdom on furniture, which furniture to buy, which car to drive, what clothes to wear. Everyone has an opinion about everything. And they all couch it in this terms, this, this ethereal, this floating, fluffy, no one can stab it down picture of wisdom. Some people bring that understanding of wisdom to the church. People have an opinion from the color of the countertop on what is wise and what is not wise to the opinion of how you should apply Revelation chapter 4 and that's the wise way or that's not the wise way. And all this time as we think and consider what is wisdom and what is not wisdom, what is wise and not wise, it's all based upon the understanding or the assumption that we in and of ourselves can actually know what the wise decision or the wise choice is in and of ourselves, that we have that ability. Disney has popularized the phrase, follow your heart. Every Disney princess movie out there, and I've watched most of them, have pity on my soul. <sighs> every, them, you, every one of them, you can boil it down to this phrase, just follow your heart and everything will be fine. Do you want to know what the wise decision is? Follow your heart. Unfortunately, the heart is deceitful 
and will always lead you astray. There's people who follow that mantra, follow your heart, follow your feelings. If you want it, just do it. There's other people who, who do the flip side of it, and they say, follow your mind. If you can reason it out, it must be true. Yeah, we don't do the feeling stuff, we do the thought stuff. If you can reason it out, it must be true, that must be the wise decision, do it. But unfortunately, both extremes, the follow your heart and follow your mind's extreme, is all based upon me. What do I feel? What do I think? Therefore, I can find wisdom. What can I achieve? Lord, give us humility. Paul says, don't pursue wisdom, human wisdom. Why? Paul says it has no worth. 1 Corinthians 3, 19 to 20, this human wisdom that we can pursue, finding it in ourselves or in other people, it has no worth. He says, 1 Corinthians 3, 19 to 20, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. The pursuit of human wisdom does not have any value in the scheme of eternity. It does not. Human wisdom is about how I can advance, how I can learn enough, how I can reason, how I can make sense of the world, how I can act in a way that is accepted by others, how I should respond in this situation, what I should say. It's all about I, all about me. And God says this human wisdom, this I-ness is foolishness. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, he said, where's the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? He says human wisdom has no worth. We cannot, we cannot reason our way into salvation. When we stand before the judgment seat of God, God's not going to look at our life and see all the decisions that we make and say, you know, According to what the culture and the world says, you did a pretty good job of reasoning your way throughout life. You were pretty wise according to the standards of the age. Therefore, enter into glory. God's not going to say that. When we come before the judgment seat of God and we stand before him, God's not going to say, come, bring me your report guard. Did you get all A's throughout your life? You did. You're such a great student. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. He's not going to say that. Our pursuit of human wisdom has no worth in the scheme of eternity. If we're proud of how wise we are, we should probably take care. But because we're proud of something that has no worth, that is vanity, a chasing after the wind. Now, if any of the kids here go to their parents and say, Pastor Peter said, I don't have to make good grades. It's not what I said. It might have sounded like that. We are to live for the glory of God and do good things for him and to do our best for him. And so we seek to do our best, not before for a grade, but to glorify him. We are, our identity is not in the grades, but we pursue the best for his glory. Lord, give us humility. Paul says that human wisdom does not have worth because we don't need it. We don't need it. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 21 to 22. 1 Corinthians 3, 21 to 22. So then no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. If we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ alone, trusting in him for our salvation, not in the things we do, whether it's our baptism or our good works, our church attendance, our communion, uh, the fact that our family believes, but we've turned, to every, turned away from everything and said, Jesus, I trust in you for my salvation alone. God has promised to give us everything we need from our identity, as John chapter 1, verse 12 says, John 1, 12 John writes, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So our identity is not in what we do, in any wisdom we think we have or the looks that we perceive we have or the way we can think or what we feel. Our identity is none of that. Our identity is in Christ and who Christ says we are. 
In Romans chapter 15, verse 5, Paul writes in Romans 15, 5, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. So in Christ, we have an identity. In Christ, we have endurance and encouragement to live every single day, no matter what the day throws at us. Uh, in Christ, we have hope. In Christ, we have love. In Christ, we have peace. And yes, in Christ, we have wisdom. God promises that he will give wisdom to those who have the humility to say that we don't have wisdom. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2. The wise man wrote in Proverbs 11, verse 2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. When we admit that we do not know and we turn to God, he promises that he will give wisdom in our situation. That's what James wrote in James chapter 1, verse 5. James chapter 1, verse 5, James said, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault and be given to you. Paul says, don't turn to this, don't turn to that, don't turn within yourselves, turn to God. How does God give his wisdom? He gives his wisdom through his word that he gave us, the Bible. He gives us wisdom through life experiences as he teaches us things through hardships. He gives us wisdom through the teachers that we are following and the teachers that we are not following. The teachers we agree with and sometimes even the teachers we don't agree with. I find it interesting that here in chapter 3, verse 19 of 1 Corinthians, Paul quotes Job here in chapter 3, verse 19. He says, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wives in their craftiness. That phrase, he catches the wives in their craftiness, is a quote from Job. There are only two spots in the New Testament where the book of Job is quoted. The first one is, is in Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, Paul is writing and he quotes from Job. He quotes from a speech that God gives at the end of Job. And it would make sense that Paul would quote a speech that God gave. It makes sense. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 19, Paul is quoting a guy by the name of Eliphaz in the book of Job. For those of you who may not be familiar with the book of Job, Job went through a horrible time. He lost his kids, he lost his crops, he lost his animals. Satan had told God that if Job loses all these things, Job is going to curse God. But Job doesn't. Even his wife comes up to Job and says, all these things are happening to you, curse God and die. And Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will turn to the ground. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Even then he did not sin. Satan sends this, this sickness on him where he has the, these boils coming up all over his body. And the only relief that he has is scraping these boils with broken pottery. And even then, he does not curse God. He still says that God is good. And through this misery, Job's three friends comes to him. They do one thing good. They're silent with him for a week. They just sit there and mourn with him. And then they start sinning. They open their mouth. And they say, Job, all these horrible things are happening to you. You must have done something wrong. God is sending these things to you as a judgment. Job says, no, I've done nothing wrong. God will not send these things from a judgment. And for most of Job, it's these three friends trying to, trying to prove a bad theology to Job, how God is a God of retribution and he sends sickness because of sin all the times and all that sorts of stuff. They do, they, the things that they say are so bad that by the end of Job, Job has to sacrifice for these three friends for their sin. God tells Job, sacrifice for the sins that these people said about me. Eliphaz was not a good guy. What he said was not good. But in the midst of all the bad things that Eliphaz says, he said at least one good thing about God that Paul was able to quote and say, this is how God is like. Paul's quoting this Eliphaz guy to tell the Corinthians that all things are theirs, whether it's teachers that they agree with or teachers that they don't teachers on both sides of the factions, whether it's life happenings, the bad things, the good things, the confidence of future in Christ. God has given everything to us for our edification, for our growth, and our confidence in him. He's given these things to us as we humbly turn to him instead of trusting in ourselves and our own wisdom. 
We turn to him and say, God, I don't know how am I supposed to react in this situation. I don't know what I'm supposed to believe. I don't know what I'm supposed to say. God, help me, teach me. And Paul says, he will. Lord, give us humility. After Paul says, don't pursue human wisdom, he says, pursue Christ. Instead of pursuing human wisdom, we are to pursue Christ. Very last verse, short one, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 23, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. Christ is worth everything to us because of what he did for us. He saved us while we were still sinners. The Bible describes us as God's enemies. We were wanting everything but him. And when we are in that state of sinning, enemies of God, running from him, he died on the cross, that we might be forgiven. That we might have an assurance of an amazing eternity waiting for us. And that we might have a personal relationship with him. That we might call God our friend and spend that time with him. Because of that, because of what Christ did for us, Paul says, pursue Christ instead of everything else. Why? Because we're his. Earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about redemption. Redemption. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, 1 Corinthians 1, 30, Paul says, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Redemption. Redemption means that Jesus looked at us when we were slaves and he paid the price for our freedom and then we transferred our allegiance over to him. That is what redemption means. Jesus paid the price for us, a great price, so that we could be freed and we transfer our allegiance to him. Paul will later say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. I love how the author of Hebrews writes it. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, Hebrews 9, 12, the author of Hebrews says, He did not enter, speaking of Jesus, by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood thus obtaining eternal redemption. Picture yourselves a slave. You're a slave to the most horrible master you've ever known or that anyone has ever known. A person that beats you within an inch of your life every single day just because you looked at him, just because you breathed or you twitched, just because he felt like it. Then one day he brings you to a slave auction beats you again, forces you to stand in front of everyone and you look at your slave master and you look at all these other masters who are lined up and they don't look any better than him. There's mean and evil in their eyes. And your heart just sinks because of the pain you know that you're going to go through for the rest of your life. Then all of a sudden, as the slave auction is starting, the door opens And there walks in a man with the kindest eyes you've ever seen. And he walks up to your master and he says, I want to buy that person. I want to buy you. And the master says, oh, you can't afford that guy. You can't afford him. And the man says, I'm going to do whatever it takes. I give myself for him. I will stand in his spot. I will take his beatings. And so the master takes off your shackles and you're able to walk free. How would you respond if that was you? Because it is. That's what Jesus did for us. He stepped into our place, taking our punishment, our pain, our everything on himself. He died that we might go free. I think about it in the words to the hymn that Isaac Watts wrote, go around and around in my mind. Isaac Watts says, see from his head, his hands, his feet. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. 
Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, love so divine, demands my soul, it demands my life, it demands my all. That should be our reaction to what we see Jesus having done for us. We should just say, Jesus, everything I have, it's yours. My life is yours. But so often instead, we look at him and we say, thanks so much for saving me, God. I'm now going to go live my life over here. That's what we do. Lord, give us humility. Paul says we are to pursue Christ because we are his. He says pursue Christ because he gives us what we need. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21, 1 Corinthians 3, 21, so then no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours. He says we don't have to boast in human leaders uh, because what we have in Christ. We don't get our identity from them. We don't get our wisdom from them. We don't get anything. Christ provides what we need. Paul writes to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, Philippians 4.19, my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, 2 Peter 1.3, Christ's divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Too often we get caught up in needing to provide for ourselves. That's one of the reasons why we seek wisdom from everything else except for God because we think we have to provide it for ourselves instead of turning to the one who's promised to give us what we need. That's why so often we make decisions without praying because we feel like we need to do it. That's why we live our, lives, uh, we live our life full of priorities in education or in financial security or in safety because we're trying to control our life instead of saying, Christ, I am yours. You've, provi- you've promised to provide, therefore I'm gonna trust in you. That's why so, sometimes we try to protect our churches from denominations or th- certain theological preferences because sometimes we get to where we think that we have to even protect God through our own provision or our own skill set or our own mental ability. God needs us to protect himself. We don't truly believe that Christ will supply everything that we need for life and godliness. We, tr- we don't believe that he will do that in the face of any pain or chaos that surround us or the evil people that come against us. We don't believe that he is powerful enough to use anyone and anything for his purposes and his good. Therefore, God, you need me. Therefore, I'm going to do it instead of trusting in you. We believe it's all up to us. But as Gordon Fee writes, God is full of surprises and he may choose to minister to us from the strangest of sources, if we were but more truly in Christ and therefore free in him to learn and to love. This does not mean that one should not be discriminating. After all, Paul has no patience for that teaching in Corinth which had abandoned the pure gospel of Christ. But to be of Christ is also to be free from the tyrannies of one's own narrowness, free to learn even from those from whom one may disagree. Lord, give us humility. Paul says in Christ, We have everything we need. He says that. But do we believe it? Do we believe it? Paul says pursue Christ, not human wisdom. Paul is calling the Corinthians to a radical change from self-sufficiency to Christ-dependency. Paul's calling the Corinthians to a radical change from self-sufficiency to Christ-dependency. And that is a great-sounding sentence that I worked really hard on. But unfortunately, it's just a sentence. It's one thing for me to come up here and say, this is the truth. And sometimes I'm right, and it is the truth. But it's one thing to hear the truth, and so another thing, and it's another thing to acknowledge that it's true, and then it's a completely different thing to actually live our lives according to the truth. So if it is true that Paul says, that God is calling us to a radical change from self-sufficiency to Christ's dependency. That Paul is telling us that we are not to pursue human wisdom, but instead we are to pursue Christ. How should our lives actually change? Too often, we live our day 
and we look at it, if we look back on it, we're like this little kid who is asked by his Sunday school teacher to prepare for the Christmas nativity scene and the little play that was going around on it. And he goes there, he's excited about it. He's putting sheep over here and cows over there, throwing palm trees where palm trees should never go. But then all of a sudden he stops and he looks at that manger scene. He scratches his head and he looks over here and he looks at it and then he looks over there and he looks at it and the teacher looks at him and says, is something wrong? He says, I'm not sure. And she says, well, what's bothering you? And he looks at it and he says, where does God fit in? And too often, if we looked at our day at the very end of it, would people be the same way? Where they look at us and say, where did God fit in, in your day? Did you live it pursuing him, pursuing human wisdom? What was it? So let's look at our day. Let's start at the beginning and walk our way through it. Talk about what it would mean to pursue Christ instead of human wisdom at the different points of the day. Let's think about the morning. How many of you wake up at five o'clock? And they all laughed. Couple people, good. Good, 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 good. How many, 5.30? Six o'clock? 6.30? 10 o'clock? Thank you, Brooke. <laughs> 1 p.m. Little tiny hand raising up over here through the seats. We'll say that we're waking up at 6.30 just, to, just for universal sake. All right, so 6.30, you wake up, the alarm clock goes off, you hit it, you groan, you roll over, you're like, I don't want to get up. And you fall out of bed and all of a sudden the day starts. Boom, there's things you have to do. You got to take a shower, hopefully you do. You brush your teeth, you you take care of breakfast. You got little kiddos maybe and you got to make sure they wake up and they're getting rent for the day. You try not to pull your hair out while you're doing it. You're thinking about work. You're thinking about planting. You think about that, that machinery that's broken. You got to fix. The car needs an oil change. All these things that are going on in your mind that you're starting cranking through. Should I do this? Should I do that? What's this? But unfortunately, you get into this fast-paced life that's teaching you that I need to do it. The quick pace of life saying, I need to do it. I need to do that. I need to do that. What am I going to do as I'm planning out the rest of the day? What am I going to do? What is on my priority list? What is this? What is that? What is this? What's that? That's the problem. How am I going to fix it? It's all about me. And so at the very beginning of the day, we need to reset our mind. Because unfortunately, we've been down this rut way too often. So what does it mean at the beginning of the day to pursue Christ instead of human wisdom? Perhaps it means setting your alarm clock for 10 minutes earlier so it's at 6.20 instead of 6.30. I'm not talking about setting your alarm clock for 3 a.m. 10 minutes earlier, just 10, maybe 15 if you want to hit this news once. 15 minutes earlier, you hit the snooze, you wake up and you grab your Bible and you blow the dust off of it and you crack it open you spend a couple minutes reading some verses because that's where wisdom is. It reminds you it comes from God, not from you. Just a couple verses and you think about those couple verses. Then you take five, five minutes to pray. Not half an hour, just five minutes. Five minutes. Not just, Lord, help me with my day, but actually pray and say, God, I need you. I have all these things going on and I can't do it myself. I don't have the strength, I don't have the wisdom, I don't have the endurance. I am not enough for this day that is ahead of me. I need you, so help me. Help me to love my wife well. Help me to love my kids. Help me to live the priorities that you want for me instead of the priorities I want. Help me to be kind to the checkout lady when she's rude for, to me at another time. Help me, Father, give me wisdom to live my day for you instead of myself. And when we start doing that, something changes inside of us. 
It teaches us the very beginning what it means to pursue Christ instead of our own wisdom. It starts the day. Now it's a practice because it's not something we want to do. It's not something we're natural at doing. And some days we'll do better at than others. But if we consistently do it, the more and more and the more we'll train ourselves to pursue him instead of the wisdom that we mistakenly think that we have in, within us. Eight o'clock comes around. The day has started, maybe, unless you're broke and you're still asleep. The day started, you've gotten back into the, the scheme of things, you're going into autopilot, maybe you're going to a school or to work or you're working on, on tractors or perhaps you're running around the town trying to get your errands done, trying to not forget the errands you're supposed to do and you've got your long list and you realize you forgot something and you're trying to figure out where on that list you're going to fit it right there and you're going around doing that, checking things off. How do you pursue Christ? instead of human wisdom, at that time. Perhaps it means in the rush of those decisions as you're trying to figure out what, how are you going to respond to the person that is in front of you, what you're supposed to say to them, or perhaps how you're to react to the situation of pain that is happening, or this choice is thrown at you all of a sudden that was not in your plan for the day. Should you do this? Should you do that? In that moment, stopping everything and saying, Father, give me wisdom in this moment. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to think. I don't know what to react. Help me now to do that. Unfortunately, so often we don't stop everything because the wheels are going so fast once the day hits. We don't stop and to, to do it. We convince ourselves that if we stop, something bad might happen. And so maybe perhaps we throw off this just rush prayer that says, Father, I need you, help me now. Which there's nothing wrong with that. But we're to pursue Christ. So it doesn't mean to stop and actually pursue him in this point in time. To say, I need you, I don't have what I need, and talk with him about it. What does that look like? Perhaps we know what God would say, and we don't want to do it because we'd be laughing stock if we followed him. Therefore, we don't want to stop and pray because we'd feel guilty not doing what he's called us to do. But we're still supposed to stop, pursue him instead of our own wisdom. Perhaps we're emotional and we, our emotions are screaming at us to do this even though we're supposed to act like that according to God. And therefore, we just go according to our emotions instead of stopping and praying saying, God, help me not do that. I need to do this. Pursue Christ, not human wisdom. Noon comes. Those of you watching the clock, it is not noon up there. I still got time to preach. <laughs> noon comes. Lunchtime hits. What does it mean to pursue Christ at lunchtime? Human wisdom says if we're hungry, we eat. And most people follow human wisdom. There are the weird people that keep working even when they're hungry. And I don't understand them. If you are one of those, sorry, I do not understand. Human wisdom also says don't be a fool and cause everyone around you to think that you're weird. But as we pursue Christ, the pursuit of Christ demands that we acknowledge his blessing, that we spend time praising him for his provision that is in front of us. Many people say that they pray without ceasing throughout the day, that God is with them at all times, therefore they're always praying. But how often is that prayer without ceasing a constant cry of, God help me with this, God help me with that, God fulfill my needs that I think that I have. And how much of that praying without ceasing is, God you are amazing. Thank you for pr these practical blessings that you've given me. Forgive me for my selfishness, for not acknowledging them, and my pride for thinking that I provided these things myself. What would it be if at lunchtime 
We turned to the person who was nearest to us, wherever it was, and said, I am so grateful that God has provided me this meal. Will you join me in thanking him for that? Praying for meals is not about seeking to God to bless the food that is before us. That is never in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. It always talks about thanking him for providing. It talks about pursuing him and acknowledging that everything we have is from him. So if we got used to praying before meals and thanking God for his blessings, we might start getting carried away because our prayer at noon could last all hour because if we think about it, there's tons of things to thank him for. If we'd be just open and honest and take the time to stop and say, God, you are amazing. Thank you for giving this to me. Forgive me for not acknowledging it. Five o'clock comes. It's time to clock out. If you are in a clock out job and if your boss is so kind to allow you to clock out at five o'clock, if it's not, I'm sorry, just walk with me. Day's done, close up your school books. <laughs> if you're still at school at five, whoo, sorry. You go home. What does it look like to pursue Christ instead of human wisdom in the evening when you go home? I spent a long time talking this morning. Therefore, it's now time for you to answer me. What does it look like in the evening from going home to right before you get ready for bed to pursue Christ instead of human wisdom in that time period? Talk about how he's blessed your day and what he's done. Good. That's a great thing to do. Purposely spend time with your family to talk about what he's done. Good. What else? Yes. Pray. Thank you. Yes. Maybe take some time for family devotions and pray together as a family. Thank you. That was a great idea. That's awesome. And you do help a lot of people, yeah. Th- thanking him for, for introducing you to those people and giving you those opportunities to serve him. Yeah. Maybe we should thank him for our lives. Mm-hmm. Thanking him for your life. Uh, yep. And all the good things that he's done to us, it's just all the world tells us there is bad. Mm-hmm. But if you look for the good in it, Yeah. Reflecting not just on your day, but your entire life. And the good that is there, reminding yourself of the good in the midst of the bad. Share with someone else what he's done. For those of you who have brothers and sisters who are living at home with you, what does it mean to pursue Christ instead of human wisdom as you interact with them in the evenings? What did you say, Roxy? Don't beat them up. <laughs> Thank you, Roxy. Yes. Love them even when you don't want to. Yes. Yes, Dom. What'd you say? Don't argue with them. Oh, even though it gives you so many opportunities because they're definitely wrong. Fast and you're stretching or can you say something? You're just stretching. All right. There's lots of different ways in the evening to pursue Christ instead of human wisdom, from praying to actually how we interact with people. 9.30 hits, we put on our PJs, crawl into bed. I'm exhausted. I want to sleep. It's been a long day. And I roll over and I close my eyes. Then I hear the sharp intake of breath and I realize my wife wants to talk. And even here, as we're laying down, it is time to pursue Christ instead of human wisdom. Whether we share the bed with someone or not. A little bit of transparency. Maggie and I pray together as we're lying down in bed before we go to sleep. Sometimes we're so tired that we fall asleep while the other person's praying. 
Uh, in my flesh, sometimes I pray really, really short because I just want to go to sleep. But it's important to pursue Christ even at the end of the day, to acknowledge that what, of what he has done for us, to beg him to help in all the ways that went wrong, in the sins that we're still struggling with, in what is laying heavy on our, on our mind and on our hearts for the next couple days to pray about our kids and our grandkids, our nieces and nephews, our spouses, our future spouses, the marriages around us. At the end of the day, as we're closing the door on that day, it's important to remind ourselves that we should not deceive ourselves, that we are not wise, but we know the one who is, and we are to pursue him alone because we need him. We cannot live this life on our own. So at the end of the day, when we lay on our pillow, we must pursue him, not ourselves. Lord, give us humility. Instead of standing in the mirror and convincing ourselves that we're okay and trying to convince those around us that we are okay, we should take a sledgehammer and shatter the mirror, turning away from ourselves and our self-sufficiency and pursuing Christ. Today, we get to practically live that pursuit out as we take communion together. Once a month, we do this uh, as a celebration of what Jesus did for us. Uh, some words of instruction. We as Calvary Bible Church believe in what's called open communion. That means that if anyone has placed their faith in Jesus Christ for their salvation, they've not placed it in the works that they do, or their church attendance, their family's faith. They don't, they've never made, or my brain's just stopped working. Wow. They've placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone, not anything that they've done. They're welcome to take communion with us. So it's open communion. You don't have to be a member of the church, this church. This might be the first time you visited. This might be the 3,000th time. You're welcome to come if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, we ask that you do not partake because these are the gifts of God for the people of God, them alone. We don't believe that these elements change into anything special. It's just crackers and grape juice. We don't believe that they change into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. We don't believe that taking these will do anything spiritual for us. They do not help in our salvation. They're just a remembrance for us, a physical way for us to remember that Jesus died for us, that we might be saved. Paul writes about this time in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves." We do this as a remembrance. When we bite down to the cracker, we hear the crunch and we recall Jesus' bones being pulled from their sockets. And when we drink the juice, we taste the bitterness of it and we're reminded of Jesus' blood being poured out for us. It's a reminder, a physical reminder because Jesus knew we needed physical reminders in our life. We as humans forget things so easily. It's a remembrance. We believe communion is also a symbol of unity, too. In John 17, before Jesus died, he prayed, Father, may those who are following me, who believe in me, be one, even as you and I are one. So we eat and drink a symbol of unity. The, the men will come and they will pass out these crackers and we each take a cracker and we hold it until everyone's served and we eat it together, symbolizing that we want to be unified. And they pass out the cups of grape juice and we each take a cup and we hold it until everyone's served and we drink it together, symbolizing that we who are followers of Jesus Christ want to be unified. 
This unity, this seeking unity, is also one reason why we take some time to pray silently to ourselves before distributing the elements. First, we pray and say, hey, is there anything that we have done against you this week? And if God shows it to us, we, we confess it to him. But we also pray and say, Father, is there a brother and sister in Christ that has something against me or I have something against them? And if he reveals it, we pray that promising that we will make it right this week and we eat and drink that promise. I'm grateful for God's grace, as I say every month, because if all of us were honest, we would not ever be able to take communion, but he gives us the grace to follow him. And when we make these promises, he sometimes kicks us and forces us to fulfill them even when we don't want to. So will you take some time and pray with me? Father, thank you that you are the good Father. Thank you that you've called us to yourself, saved us by the blood of Jesus Christ. And through his blood and his sacrifice, we have forgiveness for our sins, fellowship with you, and a promise of eternity that is, an, that is assured. Lord, thank you that in calling us to yourself, you don't leave us as we were, but you call us to change and you equip us for that change. You convict us of sin, and you encourage us to live righteous lives. You've placed us in a body, your church, to help us with this life, to show us where we are doing things wrong and giving us the strength to change and do things right. Lord, thank you for the wisdom that you give through yourself and your people. Thank you, most of all, for the ability to know you. Lord, I ask that we as your people would be unified. That those around us in the community would look at us and know that we are disciples by how we love each other. May that be us, Father. Teach us your ways. Teach us your ways. Thank you for the ability to celebrate your sacrifice through this ritual, this act. Lord, be glorified through it. Thanks, Father. Amen. If I could ask G 